Patience is a virtue. Not right now it isn't. Nothing says romance like a gift of a kidnapped, injured woman. Life finds a way. So, pretty much touch anything and get your head chopped off. I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Hello and welcome to Adventurelings. This is our second episode and we are tackling a movie that I deeply love, both because of its lead, the fantastic Gina Davis, and because of the haircuts, the transformations, the eyeshadow poorly applied, the amazing Samuel L. Jackson, the costume design is fantastic. There are many explosions. Welcome to Canada. It's a Christmas movie. It's the long kiss goodnight. Oh, I thought we were reviewing the 1997 Notorious B.I.G. song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, we can do that, too. Okay. But as long as we're on this film podcast. Right, film podcast. Film movie podcast, podcast, film podcast. Yeah. Right. Adventure Links, by the way, is an unscripted podcast about adventure movies, which sometimes veer into the action movie territory like we are today. We hit a lot of secondary genres, but adventure movies are those films that take us on a journey with the hero, dealing with unforeseen circumstances, and this definitely fits that definition. The plot, briefly, is Jean Davis is a school teacher and a mom, and she woke up eight years ago, two months pregnant, no idea who she is, no idea what's going on, and that is our premise for this film. Have you ever seen it before? I have not. What I have seen is the trailer, which was a ride. I have some initial impressions based on that, but based on your fondness for this movie, I'm very excited, but also a little bit hesitant because... (laughs) I don't know, it looks weird. One of the things that is featured very prominently in the trailer is this scene where she... I guess, wakes up or starts to remember who she is while chopping carrots. And it bothers me so much. And it's such a small thing, but I'm still going to mention it. The way that she is cutting that carrot makes no sense to me, even if you have amnesia. Like if you've ever (laughs) held a knife and a carrot, it doesn't work that way. And so I don't know. I'm excited to see the movie Uh still, regardless of carrot chopping skills. But yeah, it looks interesting. (laughs) Well, I'm excited that you're excited because this movie has been a favorite of mine for a long time and I have a lot of history with it. So the film itself was made in 1996. So for context, I was 11 in 96. I don't know exactly when I would have seen it, but I feel like I was very young because her character in this movie somehow just like lodged in my brain and I was practicing things she did in scenes and I was very drawn to it. What I remember from the last time I watched it, which was a little while ago, mostly in my memory, I'm very fixated on the hair transformations. I like the makeover. I like the all black, severe spy assassin shit. I remember a big dramatic bridge scene. I remember Craig Birko and his cute face. Don't remember enough about his part of the plot. So like, it's been a while for me as well, but I do remember she's a badass. It's a great action movie. I love it. And I'm very excited for you to see it. And also kind of to see how my memories of it hold up against the film itself. It's entirely possible that I also saw it when we were very young. I feel like when I talk to similar aged people, they are introduced to movies at, I guess, like a later age. Like, I think we got some pretty early exposure to action and adventure movies, potentially that scarred us. Who knows? (laughs) But... (laughs) Yeah. Informed our character. Informed our character. <laughs> I will say one thing, though, is it's almost impossible that we saw this in the theater. Our parents would never have taken us to see this in the theater. True. But I definitely remember watching it at a pretty young age, which now that I think of it means we <laughs> would have watched it through the lens of an amazing piece of 90s technology called The Cusbuster. I'd forgotten about The Cusbuster. <laughs> Uh, Do you want to give our audience a little bit? Yeah. Okay. So the Cusbuster, as I recall, is a piece of technology that you stick kind of in line between the VCR and the TV that mutes the TV when there's a cuss word and replaces it with like a piece of text, I think, as a subtitle in place of it. 
Yeah. Was this a victim of the Cusbuster? I can only imagine that it would have been. Oh. I mean, this is very much of that era. So it's so sad. <laughs> the Cusbuster is something that our mom got and attached to the TV to make sure that our tender ears were not exposed to too much cursing. Like Mason said, it muted the TV when someone cursed and then put in the subtitles an alternative word. And its word choice was made for some great comedy, honestly, on its own. So, like, I think hugs was the word that replaced sex. So it was, you know, people were having hugs. And I'm pretty sure that fuck was kiss. So The makers of the Cusbuster must have done some testing to be like, what word makes the most sense to replace fuck? Ah, kiss. Oh, man. The next time we're at home, we're going to get that thing out. Kiss you, you mother kisser. Like, <laughs> A hundred percent the Cusbuster is yeah. in the basement somewhere. So next time we're home, I'm going to find that shit, try it out with this movie, That's and then we're going to take a picture together. A great it. idea. Yeah. By the way, shout out to Technology Connections, which is a fantastic YouTube channel. I believe he did a review or a breakdown on the technology that makes things like the Cusbuster work. So go check that out if you are interested. Man, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Okay, so... We would have watched this as kids, basically. So, I mean, I imagine that it probably was a couple years after it came out that I first saw it. So I was 13 or something. But I was very obsessed. She does this thing with a shot glass that I for sure practiced with water and can still kind of do. One of just many nerdy things that I have tried to replicate from movies. Interesting. Why do you think this movie had such an impact on you? specifically like it's episode two of our maiden season what was it that brought it to mind i like our maiden season by the way well not maiden <laughs> voyage but <laughs> maiden season I mean, honestly it's a very easy question to answer i was a chubby dorky bookish child and i wanted to be indiana jones and or any action hero or adventure hero ever so here you have one of the few female-led action movies of the 90s of course, I was obsessed. Also, I think as a preteen, and I think a lot of preteens are just dealing with this, you know, you don't feel confident, you don't know what's going on, you don't know what to do with yourself or your life. And so in this movie, our main character has kind of an identity crisis. But it turns out she is this amazing badass. And I think, of course, you know, I was very drawn to being an amazing badass. I mean, it's really as simple as that. Also, she looks amazing in black. The Long Kiss Good Night is a very special movie to me personally because it's all tied up in who I was as a preteen and who I wanted to be and how much I didn't want to be the me that I was and how much I did want to be the Gina Davis that she was. <laughs> That's good. I like that. <laughs> Which is who we all want to be, really. Are yeah. We, if we're being honest. <laughs> <laughs> if we're being honest, I would love to be Gina Davis. Who doesn't want to be Maddie's Gina Davis? You have so many amazing movies that she is making at this time. Cutthroat Island was the year before this. Of course, we have A League of Their Own coming up before too long. I don't remember the year. Oh, of course, Thelma and Louise. So we have this powerhouse of empowered women, and I was obsessed, naturally. Makes perfect sense. Also, I've always been a sucker for a major hair transformation, and we have that definitely in this movie. So going into it, Mason, since you haven't seen it yet, what are your expectations? What are your fears? What is your personal history with Gina Davis? <laughs> Tell me everything. Personal history with Gina Davis, we dated a little bit, <laughs> never got too serious. She went off and married to this director guy around this time, actually, of this movie. That's so crazy. When I was eight. So never really turned into anything. We went our separate ways. It was mutual. But no, I had a big crush on her, as many people did, I'm sure, from probably not this movie, but you know, just her being herself. Like, she has an incredible face. She has an incredible way with a camera. And she is just a stunning actress. And so I really wish that I could remember... It must have been Cutthroat Island. It must have yeah. been where I really fell in love with her. Oh, and Beetlejuice, which oh my God. is another movie where I think I was just enamored. And yeah, we keep seeing these movies probably way too young. But seeing Beetlejuice as a young boy was pretty eye-opening, so... Going off of the trailer alone, there's an awakening. She's some type of badass. She gets bombarded by somebody from her past. I, Scar guy, shows up at her house around Christmas. Then all hell breaks loose. That sounds, I mean, it's accurate. 
Okay. A lot more happens. Spoiler. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that counts as a spoiler, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. And there are so many great character actors in this as well. The cast is amazing. Obviously, we have Gina Davis, who we both love and everyone loves. Mm-hmm. Samuel L. Jackson, also beloved by everyone. Mm-hmm. We have Craig Bierko as, uh, not going to spoiler this, a man in the movie. Okay. Tom Amandes. Brian Cox, actually, is a lot of fun in this movie. And, of course, one of the most iconic people in the cast. Lots of great people in this movie. Milena Kanakaredes. I get bonus points for seeing that on the first try quickly. Nice. Lots of fantastic actors in this movie. Honestly, I feel like it's an underappreciated combination, Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. And by both of their accounts, they enjoyed working together a lot and had a really Mm. good experience making this movie. And I think it comes through, you know? You can always tell. Like, you can always tell when there's chemistry. And certain types of chemistry are more prevalent. Like, you can tell about romantic chemistry and fun chemistry. But if they were having fun making this together and it's an action movie, like, I feel like we're going to feel that as well. Also, this is arguably a Christmas movie. It is set at Christmas. There are Christmas parades. There's one very dramatic action scene involving Christmas lights. The screenwriter, Shane Black, also wrote Lethal Weapon, has Mm. a little bit of a penchant for making Christmas action movies, which is such a weird niche to pick, but I love it. Yeah. So are you one of the people that's in the camp of Die Hard being a Christmas movie? Sure. Why not? Sure. People get very upset about this. I don't know why. Honestly, it ties into kind of the same premise behind the podcast is how strictly do you want to define a genre? Like what makes something a Christmas movie is just happening at Christmas close enough? (laughs) Or does it need to be about Christmas? The Christmas spirit needs to feature prominently. Yes. And then it's kind of the same deal with adventure movies. Like, how deep into the aesthetics of a genre do you have to go in order for it to qualify for you? Like, for me personally, if we're having an adventure, I do not care. I'm happy to define anything that has an external character journey with a hero Mm -hmm. as an adventure movie. But some people would really be only if it has sand. Or at least we will analyze movies like that and give them a fair shot at being an adventure movie because I think there are also things that kind of tick those boxes that we would exclude for any number of reasons. Yeah. And so, you know, I take that approach to the Christmas movie thing is if it's Christmas adjacent, I am happy to define it that way. Also, this is driven by the fact that I love to watch movies at Christmas and Christmas movies. So Mm -hmm. I want that list to be as big as possible and give me some genre diversity for my Christmas viewing. Good point. But that's just me. How about you? It is also me. It is not just you. It is also me. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> Cool. So Lethal Weapon is a Christmas movie coming out of the gate hot with the strong opinions. Mm-hmm. Based on the trailer, do you have any predictions that you want to make? Sure. I think that she wakes up as an assassin. Don't know who she's working for, but somehow somebody from her past finds her and... She doesn't know how to handle that situation. I'm going to guess that she gave Scar Guy the scar. And that's why he's angry. I like that. I'll be honest, I don't remember. (laughs) I really can't. There's not much more (laughs) that I can predict. I mean, it's kind of fun, though, to be going into it. Just like I saw the trailer. I know she can't chop carrots. But beyond that, I'm in for this ride. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I'm just excited to see how it holds up to my memories see how I react to her character as an adult as well, instead of as a insecure 13 year old. Yeah. I mean, I hope that I have as much fun watching it now as I did then. Mm -hmm. If nothing else, if episode two is the episode where we have like a massive disagreement on what makes an adventure movie, or if this is good or bad, we're giving the audience a taste of what's to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If this is the episode that we disagree best to get it out early. But, you know, I think regardless of whether we agree about it being an adventure movie, I do feel confident that you're going to like it. So that's my prediction is that you're going to love it. Okay. All right. Well, you ready to dive into this thing? So ready. All right. Let's roll tape. Hello, girls. Caitlin, come help me in the kitchen. Hurry up because I forget where it is. That's her mom. She's got amnesia. What if you couldn't remember your real name, your first kiss, or your last goodbye? I don't remember. Honey, you have an ETA on that carrot? 
Stow it. And then suddenly... I used to do this! I'm a chef! Yahoo! Without warning, all your memories... Name's Charlie. I'm coming flooding back to you. Even Charlie, long time. One bullet at a time. I got movement on Samantha Kane. Good. I may have a lead on someone. They still have some of her stuff. <gasps> this man, he's gonna help me find some things out. So we'll be safe. Your full name is Charlene Elizabeth Baltimore. This could be trouble. My name is Samantha Kane. No, 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 forget all that. I'm in the PTA. Then quit. You're an assassin working for the United States government. We have 24 hours. We find her and we kill her. Baltimore's alive, sir. Who are you? Name's Charlie. The spy. Back when we first met, you were all like, oh, fooey, I burned the darn muffins. Now, you go into a bar, ten minutes later, sailors come running out. What up with that? Honk if there's any trouble. Yeah, so Miss Daisy, I'd be honking. If you have plans for a calm, quiet evening. Cover your ears. Hey, should we get a dog? It's time to kiss them all. Good night, Gina Davis, Samuel L. Jackson. The Long Kiss Goodnight, directed by Rennie Harlan. Oh my god, Mason. Yes. We have just watched the film. What did you think? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> There's something special about movies where, like, everybody that you want to win the day wins the day. And there's a line in that movie where she tells Craig Bierko's character, You will die screaming. And then he does like it scratches the itch and man, I just loved it. The dynamic between the two seeing Samuel L. Jackson at that time in his life is also just a joy before kind of he became a caricature of himself. I feel like this was him in his prime, kind of the same vibes you would get from something like Pulp Fiction, where it's just him doing some of his best work. And you can tell it's like defining, you know, for him. So I really, really enjoyed it. I will also say I am very mad at the editors of the trailer because they (laughs) lied to me. (laughs) I ranted about this trailer because I couldn't see a world in which somebody with amnesia had been given a knife and told to chop carrots and that they would do it this way. And the scenes that are used in the trailer are not in the movie. And it really makes me angry. (laughs) Because I had this impression going into it that was just completely based on different takes and, you know, something that wasn't actually in the movie. So, anyway. (laughs) I love how fixated on the knives. But she has a lot of great knives in this movie. Mm -hmm. True. The kitchen knife being the least of the bunch. But while we're in the kitchen scene, the licking the pie off of your finger after murdering someone, that's a flex. Yeah. But before we get too deep into analysis, hopefully our audience will have seen this movie but if they haven't or if they haven't recently enough do you want to take a whack at the plot (laughs) like you want me to summarize what happened okay what is the plot of this movie? the plot of the movie is gina davis is suburban mom has amnesia of some sort they list the actual type of amnesia and i'm going to forget it so i'm not even going to try But is raising a daughter successfully and has a loving partner, fiance, and when the world crashes down and she gets into a wreck, she starts to awaken as this badass assassin that she had been trained to be. Now, that is not the end of the story by any means. Other people start noticing that she has awakened and that she has resurfaced after this eight years ago being pulled out of a river two months pregnant numbers that i have to be very intentional about saying correctly others start to notice that she is resurfacing and her past starts to catch up with her at which point she then needs to take down the people that are trying to take her down many of whom were marks of hers when she was an assassin that are now in league with the government agency that created her and trained her so yeah the only thing I would add to that, the final kind of, I don't know, denouement of the story is like the people running this agency lost their funding. This is a big part mm. of the plot. I think mm-hmm. it's like government agency loses funding, must hire bad guys. Mm-hmm. So they're now working with some of the people that they tried to send her after before 
and there's like a false flag terrorist attack being orchestrated that's going to, and this is very explicit in the movie, going to be blamed on a Muslim guy. Mm-hmm. So they have him like frozen and in a car and ready to dump to make it look like he did it. So it's very much like preventing terrorist attack that's being perpetrated by the government. There's some talk about the World Trade Center bombing as well, mm-hmm. but the first one. So it's very tied into sort of political, you know, mistrust of the government kind of stuff as well. But I think there are some good villains in this. You know, I was reading some folks on the internet saying, you know, that it's kind of weak and stereotypical, but I enjoyed the villains. There's some very compelling torture scenes. The water wheel one would be one of like most iconic scenes in this movie, I think. Agreed. Agreed. I also very much so enjoyed it, even if it did hit on all of the things that, you know, would now be considered tropes. I did not care. I was having a blast. Yeah, there were some head scratcher moments, maybe. Like, to go back to the beginning, who let someone with amnesia be a teacher of children? <laughs> and did she get a teaching degree? Yeah, how long does it take <laughs> between to get a teaching degree? Yeah. Coming out of the river eight years ago. And I mean, I guess, yeah, it's plenty of time. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. But she must have started on that career path, like... Like, immediately. <laughs> right out of the water, towels off. I want to be a teacher. Yeah, I want to be a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or maybe she doesn't know her name, but she does know math. Mm. Mm-hmm. No, because you'd have to like demonstrate that you have a degree. Yeah. So there's some you know, plot holes, some plot challenges, shall we say. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we're just reading too much into this teaching degree thing because... We're having fun with it. Speaking for myself, I stand by my early comments that the hair transformation is a big part of this movie for me. I am obsessed with all the hair in this movie. And I have to say, I did some research after we watched it, and I have a theory about okay. where this comes from. So What's that? as context, we have housewife Gina Davis. Actually, that's not fair. She's a teacher. As context, we have mom pre-amnesia awakening Gina Davis with this sort of lovely, like brown, long, wavy, curly, very pretty 90s hair. When she begins to awaken to her old persona, which by the way, is Charlie, Charlie Baltimore, Charlene Baltimore. When she comes back as Charlie, she cuts her hair off, peroxide blonde, all of the black eye makeup. It's a very dramatic transformation. Her husband is the director of this movie at the time, a Finnish director named Rennie Harlan, who had just come out of directing her in Cutthroat Island. So they made both of those movies together. He, at the time, had this amazing blonde wavy hair that's super long. I might need to find a picture of this. Oh, I have screenshots. Okay. (laughs) They will be on the Instagram. Okay. So I like to imagine Rennie Harlan just having very strong hair preferences. Mm -hmm. I don't know who it is, but somebody also had very strong clothing preferences for Samuel L. Jackson. And that was one of my favorite parts was kind of watching his attire from scene to scene. And he would constantly be finding these like new and different things wherever he went. Obviously, like they're on the run, but he still had time to have style. And that's what I loved. Oh, amazing costumes. So I think especially him in this movie, he has so many amazing costumes. I can tell you actually who's responsible for that. It is a man named Michael Kaplan was the costume designer on this film. Sure. One thing that came up when we're watching the movie is the incredible variety of hats. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. fuzzy kangles. There are homemade quilted, I don't even know, bucket hats. Mm-hmm. There is a Samuel L. Jackson bucket hat. There is a bizarre long knitted cap that she wears when she goes ice mm-hmm. skating that looks like old timey going to bed in the winter hat. Yeah, I just wrote down the word hats. And I guess at the time, I assumed that I would know exactly what to talk about. I should have written down more information about the hat. I loved that he kept using these sort of black and yellow color combinations. Mm -hmm. And there's a black and yellow plaid and there's kind of a black and yellow knit Mm -hmm. sweater. I don't know what made him choose that. And such an unusual color choice to make consistently throughout a single film that I really want to know. But this is not his only film of note. This is also the guy who did costume design for Blade Runner. Flashdance, Seven, Fight Club, and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, among many other films. So he's a very well-established costume designer. Yeah, that is quite the repertoire. Has given us some iconic images, for sure. Mm -hmm. Picked out that white shirt for Mr. and Mrs. Smith, man. I mean, what more could you ask of a professional? 
One thing that I also took note of is that, yes, we did, in fact, stress test the cuss buster. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go back. I mean, you mentioned going back to our parents' house and finding it and, like, putting this movie through it again. I really want to do that because every other word must have been, I'm going to kiss you up real good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yes, yeah. I don't know how the Cusbuster handled it all. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely not a film for children. No. It is full of blood. Everybody is always beaten up. I cannot imagine how much fake blood was used in this movie. That would be a great statistic to find. Find the person, you know, that had to mix all of that fake blood. Yeah. Well, have like a blood meter and it's just like how much fake blood (laughs) was used for this movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just do that. That's our rating system is how much blood. They curse, they fight. There's not a ton of sexual content. No. There's a lot of just really intense insults mm-hmm. as well. It's pretty hardcore. Blew out the Cusbuster. Yeah. Brian Cox has some really iconic scenes as well, especially the scene with, I guess it is his mother and her dog. And oh my goodness. I just. <laughs> the dog licking its little backside. Yeah. I was in stitches. Because it was such a well-shot and well-written scene. Even though it is not the main focus of the movie at all, we don't really even know who Brian Cox is when we're shown that shot. It was still, like, a wonderful piece of filmmaking. So I really enjoyed it. Oh, man. Speaking of wonderful filmmaking, (laughs) a moment that I had forgotten about, but that is a new favorite, is the peeing baby doll full of kerosene. (laughs) Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of movies require MacGyverish skills from their mm-hmm. leads. But I, I just imagine her doing this. She'd have to t- she'd take her daughter's baby doll, squeeze it, stick it down in a barrel of kerosene, and then make it suck up a bunch of kerosene so that you could then later pee the kerosene yes. out. <laughs> it's also a great time capsule because, I mean, I don't know if baby dolls like that exist anymore, but like it was a fad at one point that this baby doll is so realistic that it pees, That is I such guess. a gross... <laughs> Why to make? Why would you even do that? Unless you were trying to give people a tool when they're locked in a freezer and need to explode things. That's definitely why that doll was created, was to hide kerosene. Yeah. Also, the shot glass thing. I noticed she does this thing in the movie where she takes a shot glass, fills it up, rolls it like across her face to her mouth, you tip it back, and then you roll it a little further and you drop it into your hands below. Now, this is what I was talking about during our intro section. This is the thing I used to practice as like a weird 13-year-old is just to fill a shot glass with water, practice doing this to look cool. But I'm not the only one who thought it looked cool because it appears in literally every fan video that I pulled up to watch. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That is, for some reason, the thing that people latched onto is a moment that illustrates the character. Hmm. That and using a flaming corpse as a counterweight while writing a bunch of Christmas lights down mm-hmm. over the Canada border. Yeah, that was another... I don't want to say it's like an inconsistency or anything, but that gun that she grabbed off of that body <laughs> must have been so hot. It's been sitting in flames and then she just casually grabs it. But, I mean, I can understand in the heat of the situation... <laughs> nerd in the heat of the moment grabbing whatever you have available i'm just a little surprised that like the rounds inside hadn't gone off yeah there's some challenges some logistical challenges suspension of disbelief is a phrase that will come up i'm sure very often here and i am very ready to suspend my disbelief in situations like this and like i said i was having so much fun with the movie and the characters and everything that like i didn't care even if i noticed it i didn't care Yeah. I mean, I will say, speaking of suspension of disbelief, there's a moment in this movie that I had forgotten about that I just loved so much. And you do have to kind of say, like, "Eh, I don't know how practical that would be, but it makes for a great movie moment. And that is Samuel L. Jackson just lying in the street smoking on his back because he just (laughs) cannot be bothered to get up. Yes. I feel like I don't know why that hasn't been a bigger meme, just because I know that feeling so well. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to make it a meme. Good. Speaking of logistical challenges or suspension of disbelief, if we're gonna nitpick, which I guess we are, the scar guy, I Scarly, <laughs> test- <laughs> Excellent. testing it out, I Scarly comes in and shoots at the wall of her house and it like blows this massive hole. I don't know what type of shotgun he's using or what type of round, 
but it blows the side of her house completely away. She then proceeds to chuck her child through the hole into the treehouse, but that same gun can't get through a fridge door. And I want to know who made that fridge because that <laughs> yep that would be a great sponsorship <laughs> sponsored by Kevlar yes but not a company just the material we need more everyday items that are randomly bulletproof sure i want to do not little house on the prairie a prairie home companion style commercials for just not real sponsors yes today's episode is sponsored by Kevlar when you need to not die of a bullet wound Kevlar is there for you Kevlar Promo code adventure links. We don't have any real sponsors, so fake sponsors it is. <laughs> yeah. So after I watched this movie, I did do a little bit of research because my only exposure to this movie is just like watching it as a dorky little fan. So I didn't know much about how it was made or when it was made or just the context. So, you know, we already mentioned that the director at the time was her husband. Mm-hmm. I should emphasize at the time because they did not stay together for too much longer after this and had quite a dramatic ending to the marriage. Really? Yeah. She, she filed for, this isn't funny. She filed for divorce the day after her personal assistant gave birth to his child. Oh. Drama. Okay. Yeah. But prior to that, they made Cutthroat Island together. Mm-hmm. They kind of made these movies close to the same time because Long Kiss Goodnight was in development and they had to make Cutthroat Island first contractually. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stuff happening for the two of them at this time. They're making action movies. Cutthroat Island did not do well at all. So they went into making and releasing this movie off the back of like Cutthroat Island bombing. A tragedy. <laughs> but this movie was mostly shot in Canada. And one of the things that I read was that they likely caused a fire at a historical building that burned it all the way to the ground. Oh, no. It was suspected that it was a studio light or more generally electrical problems. It was never... I shouldn't say it was never investigated, but there was no certainty around what caused the fire. Mm. But at the time, the LA Times wrote an article. So this, this is an article by uh, Judy Brennan, and it's dated March 1st, 1996. And I put it in my notes because I wanted so badly to just read like the opening to it. So, a fire that destroyed a historical Canadian resort may have scorched the livelihood of the community that it relied on, but it apparently will have little effect on director Rennie Harlan's The Long Kiss Goodnight, which had been set to begin filming at the Lodge on Wednesday. <laughs> just like the saltiness of yeah. like, it may have scorched the livelihood of the community, but it's not affecting this fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's worth being salty about. Like somebody comes into your town and I don't know, like isn't careful around your historic monuments and burns it down. And they're like, meh, meh, we're still going to film the movie. Yeah. So mm. yeah, but this is like the LA Times. So like they're even, I mean, I just sort of love that they're like, hey, we're in LA, but we can see how much this sucks. <laughs> but it wasn't just the LA Times. Also, so the building that burned down is called the Windermere House. Okay. And I think it was like 127 years old or something at the time Mm. that it burned down. Their website says about this event, on February 27th, 1996, Windermere House was destroyed by fire during the filming of the Hollywood film The Long Kiss Goodnight with only the stone veranda remaining intact. And that's like the full listing. So I kind of love that they're like, we're not going to say you did it, but it was destroyed by fire during the filming of this movie. Mm -hmm. So what is the current state of that place? Like, has it been rebuilt? They rebuilt it. Okay. Gone, but never forgotten. I mean, like, <laughs> they definitely remain yeah. committed to putting the blame where it is due. <laughs> right? Yeah. Just shy of, like, libel. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, Emily, we've talked in some of our other episodes about casting potentially going different ways, right? Yes. What would the movie have been like if Leonardo DiCaprio had starred in The Mummy instead of Brandon Fraser? Things like that. Mm-hmm. During some of my research, and you may have seen this as well, New Line Cinema was considering changing the role from mm-hmm. being a female role to a male role. And boy, howdy, the two people that came up as potential names, I don't think I would have enjoyed this movie nearly as much if it had starred somebody like Steven Seagal or Sylvester Stallone. It would not have been the same. And from a continuity perspective or from a story perspective, I don't know how it would have worked, but... <laughs> how would he have woken up two months pregnant <laughs> eight years ago? <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, In a river. Hand, Yeah, exactly. We all know that he can, he can carry a child. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I did actually find that as well. Yeah. And 
I completely agree. It just, I mean, they're, well, okay, maybe not both, but Sylvester Stallone can make a fun action movie. That one of the big things, of course, is that when you see Sylvester Stallone's face, you know what you're in for. Mm-hmm. So I do think that having Gina Davis in this role, which she's so fully committed to, and I mm-hmm. think part of that was her relationship with her husband, because some of the interviews that I listened to <laughs> was basically him saying, it's fine, they complain, but they don't mean it. And then her saying, I didn't want my husband to think I was a wuss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think, honestly, a lot of this was her just like, if he thinks it's okay for me to do this, by God, I'm going to do it because I'm not going to be the one who said no, which sounds sad now that I say it out loud like that. But she did some amazing stunt work. And actually speaking to that, I read Roger Ebert's initial review of this and he had a quote that I really loved. And he referred to Gina Davis as a good sport if there ever was one Oh gosh. <laughs> for her stunt work specifically. It's not demeaning, but it almost sounds like it. I don't oh. know why. You don't think so? I don't know. Well, I didn't read it like that because it was in the context of the larger review. He's basically saying, this movie is fun. It's not especially memorable, but Gina Davis deserves a bunch of credit for doing a ton of stunt work. Okay, that's good. Yeah, because he basically says, like, there are scenes that I know she did the stunts, but you can barely see her face. So why not let the stunt people do it and save your body some damage? (laughs) Speaking of, I know that she and Rennie Harlan both did some testing to understand her limits when it came to being underwater. So there was a scene where she is being tortured and goes underwater. And Emily and I, while watching the movie, both (laughs) said to each other, hey, do you do that thing where when somebody goes underwater in a movie, you also subconsciously hold your breath? And we were like, yes, yes, we both do that. And so we both held our breath to make sure that we could also endure it. And we can. We can. And that was an intentional thing. I guess they tested her limits to see what was realistic for that period of time of being underwater. So I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Another weird fact. But related to that, so while we're watching the movie, one thing that I was wondering is how much of this is makeup and how much of this is her being really fucking cold? Because her (laughs) face, like all of the blood drains out of her face. And to me, it just looked realistic. Like it looked like she was really cold. But you being the kind person that you are was like, no, 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 they can do a good job with makeup. I bet the water's comfortable, whatever. (laughs) I still don't have a great answer to that specific scenario, but I did learn a bit more about the stunt where they fall through the ice. Oh, okay. Like where she shoots down into the quote unquote thin ice outside the bank. Yeah. So as background, going into this scene, we see them driving past a sign that says thin ice. Mm -hmm. They go into a building, shoot, shoot, gun, gun. Then there's a big explosion. And then she and Samuel L. Jackson are running down this hallway and they have to dive out of a window Mm -hmm. to escape essentially a fireball. Sidebar. The fire in the scene when they're running down the hall is CG, but the fire when they actually... Don't say. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. All right, all right, all right. That was me. Not to me, to the CG guys. (laughs) But the fire, when they actually jump out the window and we get like a profile shot, that's real fire. So like they dive Mm -hmm. out the window and it's really them. And there's an actual real fireball coming out after them. Hmm. So like Mason said, she shoots down kind of in a circle onto this presumed thin ice. And then they fall into the water. What I have learned is they did three takes of that. That is an actual frozen lake. They actually did that diving into an actual frozen lake. It was so cold that the hole kept freezing over in between takes. That's what I was about to ask is like, how do you retake that if it's an actual real frozen lake? And it's because it was refreezing? Yes. That's insane. It is insane. And apparently, so they had to break the ice, I guess. They put basically a tub under the water so they couldn't accidentally go under the ice and drown, you know? So like Mm -hmm. they had some walls basically on either side underneath the water, but Mm -hmm. it was the real lake and the real lake water and the real ice. Wow. So they basically were diving into this sort of semi-controlled outside frozen tub. (laughs) Wow. And she said they had to do that three times, but it was really, really cold. Yeah. So all of this to say, the director, I should point out, he's from Finland, so maybe it doesn't seem that bad to him. I don't know. But he was definitely comfortable putting her in cold water. So I stand by my, that looks like she's really, really cold. (laughs) It does seem to lend some credence to that claim, yes. Yes. So that stunt definitely was one that both she and Samuel L. Jackson have mentioned in interviews. One thing that I thought was really interesting is somebody asked him about his injuries on this movie. And he was like, oh, I didn't get hurt on this movie at all. (laughs) which is amazing given how much injury is inflicted on his character. Mm -hmm. He said that, (laughs) I love this so much because in the interview he was like, oh, I didn't get hurt. Maybe I bummed my elbow like a little bit rolling out of that car, but that's really it. So like 
Samuel L. Jackson bumped his elbow a little bit. But yeah, the amount that he gets beaten up in the movie and takes damage and shots and everything, like, that is surprising. Especially if he was doing some of his own stunts alongside Gina Davis. Mm -hmm. That's impressive. Yeah, and he said he did get to do a lot of his own stunts and especially his own driving. So, you know, it sounds like he had a good time. Speaking of damage to Sam... The original cut of the film had him dying, and people hated it so much. I mean, not the movie, but, like, apparently (laughs) the thing that turned the tide was in the screening when he died. Someone in that audience yelled out, you can't kill Samuel L. Jackson! (laughs) (laughs) And and that and other people's (laughs) feedback, they did reshoots, and they changed the ending. Yeah, and everybody else in the theater went, yeah, yeah, yeah! yeah." I want to know who that person is, because they deserve... A gift basket. Yes. (laughs) It's so satisfying that even though at the end of the film, Samuel L. Jackson was like an inch from death, it's so satisfying to see him come back and help save the day and Mm -hmm. then, you know, appear on Larry King Live with real Larry King. Yeah. That was fun. (laughs) Yeah. And make an awful joke. (laughs) Do you remember? Oh, man. There are some. Yes, I do. I'm always earnest and. Frank and earnest. Frank and earnest with my women. Frank and Philly and Ernest in Detroit or something yeah. awful like that. But Good one, bro. I mean, I just, I love that when he got to that national stage, he was like, this is the time to pull out that joke. <laughs> I've made it. I'm here. going to shoot my shot. Everybody's going to know that I am the funniest. Yes, yes. It is a fun appearance. Another thing that I wrote down that is a funny thing to find on a note on your desk when you come back to record again, and that is anal threats. <laughs> God, what? <laughs> anal threats? Because all throughout this movie, and it's kind of a trope that I really hate, that's like, you're oh. going to prison, oh, and that means that about. you're going to yes. be butt-fucked against your will, which there's another word for that. It just makes me so sad that that's always like, this is what you do, this is a part of what you deserve if you go to prison. But regardless of that separate social justice issue, there are so many times in this movie where somebody is threatened with butt sex. Over and over. I don't remember picking up on that outside of that one scene at the very beginning. <laughs> no, there's because a couple like, there. Yeah, that one was at the beginning and you're kind of like establishing the character of Samuel L. Jackson. I don't know that I picked up on it later in the movie. I feel like there's some homophobia at play there, I mm. think. Okay. There's always a violent thing to threaten somebody with. Yeah, of course. And I know we're just to take a hard left turn from like funny ha, 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 into like discussions of sexual violence in movies. But it bothers me a lot when movies don't acknowledge, hey, you're aware that you just wrote someone threatening someone else with rape, right? Mm. Like that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Because it's been in prison doesn't make it any less of a sexual assault. And I just don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so. No, but that trope does still come up, and it still bothers me, too. And, you know, I think this can be a lighthearted podcast. It can also be, you know, something where we talk about actual problems with the film industry and the fact that people are still willing to make light of stuff like that as an issue. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't think that's off limits at all. My notes varied from baby pea kerosene to mm-hmm. anal threats to animatronic deer. Yes. One thing that I remember that you were very into is I, like, I think that deer is animatronic. I love that animatronic deer. Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> when, when she has the car accident that kind of jolts her consciousness, whatever, and Charlie begins to reemerge. Hashtag Charlie mode. Hashtag Charlie mode. <laughs> that was another thing yeah. I wrote down. Yeah, because every time she needs to bring that part of herself forward, there's like this shift and she becomes Charlie. Mm-hmm. So the first time that she goes into Charlie mode, <laughs> I find this scene hilarious. So actually, and there's also a couple of really nice shots in it as well. So I may be shitting a little bit on Rennie Harlan, but I will say he has some really nice shots in this movie that I enjoyed and that I mm-hmm. can particularly call out. And one of them is in this scene. So car accident... Old man is messing with her. He's drunk. He's putting his hand in her face. She sees a deer in front of her. She swerves, hits the deer. A deer comes through. It's very dramatic. Deer comes through the windshield, goes down the hill, whatever. She is thrown through the window of the car because she is not wearing a seatbelt, question mark. Then we have this really nice shot of her, like, lying in the snow. You can't really see her face very well. There's some blood. There's wet hair in the snow. And then she has one of those Christmas earrings that's like a blinking light. And it's just Mm -hmm. like blinking in the snow. And I was like, I like that. That's clever. That's sad and poignant. But she is not dead. She gets up. She takes off her shoes or did they fly off in the car accident? I think they came off in the car accident. 
At any rate, she's barefoot in the snow, which is bad enough. And then she proceeds to walk barefoot through a freezing stream to go over to a deer that has clearly been injured. She snaps the deer's neck and then just like lays down next to it. Yep. At the time, I remember being like, what happened to this fucker in the car? Yeah. Like, she's very concerned that the deer is suffering. Cannot be bothered to go back up that hill and check on the old man. He didn't deserve to burn to death. No, he didn't. He was just being a goofy old drunk. She was definitely not concerned with his well-being. No. But that animatronic deer, I don't know. I mean, you can tell, but I thought it was a pretty decent job. And then it's in the credits, and you actually, you said it out loud at the time. I don't remember if you wrote it down, but the two people responsible for Mm -hmm. building the animatronic deer are particularly called out in the film credits. So Yes. Shout because we them. want them on the show. Yes. I think we have plans for pretty much every movie we, we watch, finding somebody associated with the movie that we think would have fun insights into kind of the movie magic process. And people that do set dressing and animatronics and things like that that aren't typically celebrated, I would love to hear the stories from them versus the pundits, the PR people that like, oh yeah, it was a great set. It was, you know, this and that. But like, I want to hear like the weird details of in the stories that they have. So we have ambitions to get people like that on the show or do some bonus content with them. Absolutely. And so far that list is the camel wrangler from Scorpion King, Mm -hmm. the painted scarab lady, this beautiful blue, green, black, scarabs from the mummy Mm -hmm. the lady who made those is called out in the credits and now the animatronic deer people yes so i'm excited the list is growing and those will be the first big gets for us on the podcast (laughs) yes so speaking of charlie mode what is your favorite moment of charlie mode do you have anything that like jumps out to you like oh man this was pretty cool Ooh, that's a good question i guess i will have to go back to the moment where she makes the decision like the snap judgment that she needs to grab the gun off of the burning guy, fly up and shoot Craig Bierko's character out of the helicopter. I know that it doesn't really hold up super well when put under intense scrutiny, but I still enjoyed it very much. And like I said, it scratches that itch of you want her to win the day. You want to see him die screaming because he is a good villain. Like I think he acts very well for that role and really makes you hate them. I really identify with villains and people that act as villains that really make you hate the person. And if I saw Craig Bierko on the street, I'd probably punch him, you know? And like, I think that's a good benchmark. First, you'd ask him how he got that sharp line on that one part of his beard, where it's like he has the stabby sideburn that's just like a quarter millimeter longer than the rest of his beard. Mm -hmm. And then, then once you know, then you punch him. Then I punch him, yeah. Yeah, you know, speaking of villains, I, I don't have the reaction that you're describing where I kind of like love, love to hate. I just okay. absolutely hate. And I don't mind him too much, but there are certain people that just get under my skin. I mean, the classic, for me at least, the one that I always think of is like, I have a visceral hatred that causes an actual like fight or flight response to Dolores on bridge. I want her to I die knew you were gonna so say badly. That. I, I knew you were going to say that. hate that bitch. And every time I watch that movie, I'm like... She makes me so angry. And I could have an entire podcast episode just about why I hate her so much. I agree. And yeah, every time I watch it, it is so maddening. But I do, in the moment, I guess, recognize what's happening to me. Like, (laughs) why I'm having this, you know, insane reaction. It's because, oh, it's because they're a good actor. Good for them. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, I'm not going to think, you know, you're a bad person but oh no, no good for no. them they did a really good job being hateable yeah i mean imelda stanton's fantastic and that's why i mean you're yeah. absolutely right but it doesn't stop me from i mean just the reaction that i have is yeah. so strong but then again i kind of have that with movies and tv sometimes where if something's really awkward or if something's really just intense like i have to pause it and just like give it a mm. second because mm-hmm. i get to i think it's just a an empathy reaction or whatever. Like I'm just projecting myself into the story so much that Mm. sometimes I have to pause it. Movies can do that to you. I mean, like it's a power of the medium for sure. There's a word for that. You know what it is? It's a narrative transportation. Oh, look at that. Yeah, but it's true. I did not know that. A good story does transport you out of your current reality. And yes, some people can maintain that distance a little bit better than others. I can maintain that distance. Not at all. I am 
okay with action adventure movies. I'm really bad with sad movies. I'm a crier. Let's be honest. <laughs> I'm a big time crier. If there's an emotional scene where I can kind of like put myself in their shoes, like I was watching something recently where a dad had to watch his daughter die and like oh. I thought it was awful and like could not stop crying. I don't have kids or anything like that, but I could just, I don't know, imagine the roller coaster that that father had to be going through. Not roller coaster, but yeah, yeah I'm going to start crying now. So we're going to skip that. I also am a crier with movies and also with Folgers commercials. The one of like the little girl is waiting for her brother to come home and then he's there. There's coffee. Oh, also, yeah. I, I have strong feelings about coffee. Mm -hmm. But no, I'm definitely a crier too. But the thing, the thing that I do, if it helps, I will share a little bit of my own personal embarrassment. Something that I do, and I'm very grateful that not that many people watch me watch things, is I tend to either mirror people's facial expressions or do mm. the facial expression and sometimes even hand gestures that I want someone to do. Mm -hmm. So like if there's a character, say a character is reaching out and putting themselves out there and then another person isn't responding yet, I will be over in my seat just like smiling mm -hmm. an awkward, intense smile of like, please smile back, please smile back or like, <laughs> you know, put your hand out. So like I am certain that if there was a hidden camera in my living room, you'd be like, God, Emily, you're so weird. <laughs> I'm just sitting over there on the couch <laughs> watching TV going like, ah. <laughs> like smile please mm -hmm. that's funny or sometimes i'll like jerk a little bit during a fight or something or like i'll notice mm -hmm. like i'm holding my breath or like clenching really badly i just didn't <laughs> i want to be in the movie so bad that's my problem we'll get the chance also i cry we'll be in the movie but i actually don't want to be in a movie i would only ever want to be like a director or a screenwriter and i've as you know you know done a little bit of that in like just local film festival type mm -hmm. things and it's so much fun that's awesome so I enjoy making the story and watching it from my couch and over emoting. Is there anything else you want to do to either sell people on this movie, get them to watch it if they haven't watched it, you know, tie it up in a nice Christmas bow? Oh, speaking of Christmas bows, yes, I can. Oh, see, here we go. So there's a quote that I read <laughs> from Shane Black, the screenwriter, about this movie that I thought was kind of cute. Hit me with it. So he says, there's an element of it's a wonderful life. <laughs> Right? I know. I would never have. There's an element okay. of It's a Wonderful Life where she's living out this life and she had to forget that she's a killer in order to do it. Christmas is the perfect time for that suburban housewife. It's the perfect fantasy to pursue. Clearly, this was a spoken interview and not a written interview. <laughs> what if I were just someone making Christmas cookies? What if I was buying gifts instead of knives and guns? So apparently, you know, from his perspective, it's kind of a reverse It's a Wonderful Life where gotcha. she lived out this fantasy of not being Charlie. Mm-hmm. And the perfect time for that fantasy was Christmas. Neat. I like that. I did write down a couple of other things. Her blonde hair, by the way, was her real hair. It was actually the brown hair that was the wig. <laughs> Do you think that that was because that was the style she had chosen at the time or that that was easier to maintain and put a wig over? I think probably that. She said that they cut it for the movie. And then because like, I watched an interview with her right after and she still had the blonde. And the yeah. interviewer was asking her like, oh, so you're going to keep it for a little while? So... Yeah, so that was her real hair, and she hung on to that hairstyle for a little while. Also, speaking of, we talked earlier about Sylvester Stallone and Steven Seagal yes. <laughs> as uh, potential alternatives to Gina Davis for this movie. The Darkest Timeline, as it is called. Yes, the <laughs> Darkest Timeline. Uh, the Darkest Timeline is the one where it's a white guy who leads the film and Samuel L. Jackson dies. Correct. That's the dark timeline. Correct. However, there is an alternative timeline that I don't actually think is dark that involves another character, alternative casting. Craig Bierko was not the only Craig considered for Timothy. This is, by the way, his character's okay. name, Timothy. Craig Ferguson auditioned for this role. <laughs> so I know Craig Ferguson from The Late Late Show. Yeah, me too. Where he is just a delight. He's the best. Potentially the best late night host of all time. Except Graham Norton. Interesting. I don't know if I agree or disagree. <gasps> I know. We're going to have to fight it out. We might have to fight about that. But I did not realize he was in line for roles like that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he auditioned for it. He lost out to Craig Bierko. Clearly they were going for a Craig and it just wasn't him. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> 
I now need to look up what all Craig Ferguson was in, because if he was in some serious acting roles, I might need to seek those out intentionally. Maybe he wasn't, because maybe this was his one shot, and he was like, nah, I think I'm going to stick with being a comedian and late night host. The screenwriter, Shane Black, actually also wrote a number of other movies that I'm sure you're familiar with. Of course, Lethal Weapon. Mm -hmm. He also wrote The Last Boy Scout. He wrote Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, The Nice Guys, and Iron Man 3. Yeah, I am familiar with all of those. He made, by the way, a record-breaking amount of money on this script. I heard about that. Something to the tune of $4 million. Yes, $4 million, and it was the most money ever paid for a movie script up until that time. Do you know what the box office earnings were? Yes. So it had a $65 million budget and it made $96 million. Okay. Box office. Okay. I did see one source that said 99, but that was a guy in a YouTube video and his accent was funny. Okay. Australian, by the way. That's what I meant by. <laughs> <laughs> he was Australian. I understand. So I don't know if that's like Australian dollar markup or what. So we'll say $96 million. Okay. And apparently from the very beginning, he planned for this to have a sequel. Hmm. It even had a name and the name was A Kiss After Lightning. Really? And yeah. And there was some movement on making it. Apparently around 2007, there was some talk of making a sequel, but hmm. obviously it never happened. So Yeah, 2007 also would have been 11 years after the original. That is quite a gap. And the characters, depending on who is retained from the original cast... Characters are probably very different at that point, at very different points in their careers at that point. So, interesting. Yeah. You know, I do think that during that 11 years, because it it didn't flop when it first came out, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't... I mean, I found a bunch of different people blaming different things. Okay. Shane Black said it was about how it was marketed. I don't know. But it didn't have maybe the level of reception at the time that perhaps it should have. So I think during that time, that 11 years, it was building kind of a cult status. Mm -hmm. But, you know... Never to the point that the sequel got made, so (laughs) not enough, I guess. But then it has had a bit of a resurgence. Maybe if we can restart that, get it going again uh, (laughs) now. Well, nobody needs us for that because Samuel L. Jackson has been out there doing the Lord's work on that front. So he just apparently, interest in the movie started to grow again after he kept listing it as his favorite movie Mm. that he made. I found at least two different late night interviews, one in 2019 and then one in 2021, where he was asked by Fallon and Colbert, respectively, about his favorite movies of his own that he had made Mm -hmm. that he enjoyed watching. And this is his number one. So Samuel L. Jackson's favorite Samuel L. Jackson movie is The Long Kiss Goodnight. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Hard to argue with that. One thing we haven't really talked about is that there are a couple of movies that share some things in common with this. The most oft noted is The Born Identity. Mm-hmm. And there are some connections. I mean, it does have some of those same themes. So I actually did look up what came first. So obviously, this came before those movies. But the books, the Born Identity books, were definitely published before this movie. So, mm. you know. I haven't read the Born Identity books. But they certainly can't have shot selection in them. Like, they can't... <laughs> Well, they don't have cinematography. They don't have, you know, no things shot like selection that. in books. Well, but part of what Sometimes makes The Born Identity such kind of like a breakthrough movie of the time period was how it was shot. And so I feel like no matter when the books came, like the things that I would be pulling from The Born Identity aren't necessarily the characters or the story or anything, but more of like how it changed the action movie genre. Yeah, they are aesthetically very different. This has more like Lithum Nikita type vibes or I don't know, just it's got a very gritty visual quality, Mm -hmm. camera quality. We start off in a very kind of glowy Hallmark movie type Mm -hmm. deal when she's just, you know, out there being a mom. But it does get very gritty, like the light changes. I don't know enough about cameras to speak to this in more detail, but it does seem like they made some changes in the camera and lens choices mm-hmm. that really impacted that visual quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I liked at the end that they have this like adorable farm and they're goats yeah. and they're playing, you know, and she throws the knife to show you that she still got it. But mm-hmm. honestly, it comes down to, I'm just glad that her boyfriend didn't die. Like, I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The fact that he stuck with her. <laughs> like it's almost inevitable that he dies as a part of this movie and he didn't. And I love it. Yeah. And I mean, there are a lot of characters in that same position that get freaked out and run when they're confronted with this. But if you're thinking about, who he knew he was getting into a relationship with. He knew he was getting into a relationship with somebody that had a past that they couldn't remember and, you know, had a child that wasn't his and, you know, all these things. So, like, 
I think he's a good, high quality, high character person from the start. And I'm glad that that isn't betrayed by him leaving or, you know, abandoning her, getting freaked out, whatever. And that, you know, she, despite having some, I guess, second guessing about who she is in the middle of the movie, decides that her best life is with him. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, you know, we didn't talk much about him at the beginning other than to say that he existed. But I thought he was a nice character because he was such a good father or stepfather Mm -hmm. or father figure to the daughter. And we also didn't talk much about the daughter. And I do want to shout out that she had a couple of nice acting moments. She had to, like, beg her mom to wake up at one Mm -hmm. point. And that little kid put in some effort. She got nominated for quite a few young actor awards because of this role. Actually, Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yep. But I did know that she ended up working on several other Shane Black pictures, actually. She was in The Nice Guys and then also in Iron Man 3. So I need to go back and watch Iron Man 3 now to pick her out because I obviously, when watching that the first time, wasn't paying attention to former child actor, you know, from <laughs> Long Kiss Goodnight. Yvonne Zima. Yvonne Zima. Is her name, by the yeah. way. Yvonne Zima. She had some nice acting moments there. I mean, I guess there's only one thing left to ask, and that is, do you think it's an adventure movie? Yes. Yes, I do. Some adventure movies, I think the journey is more distance and going to a temple or something like that, like uncovering a hidden past, whatever. But this one was very much so internal. There was this kind of dichotomy of, you know, Charlie versus Samantha and There were flashes of both at the beginning, but then eventually she settles into a mix of both where she's kind of like taking the best parts of each. You know, I recognize that I was trained as an assassin, but that means I can be a good protector for my child. Like Mm -hmm. it wasn't just one side or the other. She kind of found that balance and went on that kind of emotional journey to end up in a good place because at the end, I didn't want either of them to go, right? I didn't want Samantha to win or Charlie to win. I wanted them both. And the fact that she was able to come out with a good mix of both skill sets, I think was a good journey. Yeah. What about you? So do I think it's an adventure movie? Yes, I do. I mean, I think, and I'll probably say this many times on this podcast, that my kind of current working definition, an adventure movie is any movie where there is a hero, we're going along with the hero on this journey, I think for me, one of the hallmarks is the journey is primarily external. I mean, obviously external journeys, like we evolve internally, personally, along with them. But this is not like I'm coming to terms with my dad's death is like the primary plot point. You know, this is like the house has exploded and that's making me think about my dad's death, Mm -hmm. you know, or whatever. So like we have a primarily external journey and that often involves, you know, traveling or different locations or escaping from something or rescuing someone or, you know, those types of things. I don't know. Is that too loose of a definition, I guess? But like, basically, we're going on an adventure and we're all hoping we make it out alive. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's too loose. If anything, it's more restrictive than mine because I was allowing for the possibility of an internal journey accompanying an external journey. Oh, I fully am on board with that. I just think there needs to be an external journey. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure we'll come back to this a lot because how much of a journey needs to happen? I mean, most of this takes place in upstate New York and New Jersey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, we're not covering a lot of ground, but we do go to Niagara Falls and we're trapped in a freezer and we're in a little cute town and we're at the Canadian border. And, and her last name is Baltimore. Then her last name is Baltimore, which counts as location. Yes. I think we're in D.C. brief. No, I know we are because we see the White House. (laughs) So I don't know. I'm good with that definition for now, but I am certain that we'll get people pushing back. But I guess my perspective would be like, there's no reason that it can't have a secondary genre. So is it an adventure movie that's also a thriller like this one? Mm -hmm. Is it an adventure movie that's also a historical epic? You know, is it a noir adventure or whatever? Like, I have no problem with that, but I get it too. Like, there are people who love the adventure genre for the transportation to a particular feeling and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. They want to feel the Indiana Jones with the hat and the sand Mm -hmm. and the whip. And I get that because like, honestly, I do too. Yeah. There aren't enough of those movies made to meet the need in me for them. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah. Aesthetically, this skews much closer to action movie than adventure movie in terms of, yeah, the shot selection, the locations, you know, that they choose, things like that. But yeah, I agree with your definition and agree that this fits it. 
Awesome. All right. Have we run out of stuff to talk about? <laughs> I think I have. <laughs> I probably Potentially have, yeah. a while ago. <laughs> It was an absolute pleasure getting to watch this movie with you. I'm very thankful that you made it a priority on our list and look forward to watching this many times again in the future because <laughs> it was a very pleasurable experience. I am just so happy that you liked it. And the next time that we are physically in the same place, we'll have to take a shot a la Charlie. Deal. Okay. So. <laughs> well, with that... Thank you for listening to The Adventurelings. I have been your co-host, Mason, here with my sister, Emily, and we thank you very much for your time. We would love to hear what you think about this movie. When did you see it? How do you feel about it? Do you think it's an adventure movie? We're looking forward to your thoughts. So please reach out to us at The Adventurelings on Instagram. You can also find us and everything on our website at theadventurelings.com. And we really appreciate your time and would extra appreciate it if you wanted to leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. But I'm just grateful that you spent this time with us. And Gina Davis, thank you for joining us today on Adventurelings, your weekly dose of filmic insanity. <laughs> two months, two years, eight? Two. Two. Two years. years. No. Two, two months two, pregnant. Two years, eight months or eight months, two years? Eight months. Two, eight no, years two. ago, because the kid is big. Kid is big. Eight years, two months pregnant. Okay. Eight months, two years. No. Two. Cow. I still can't do it. Stork. Like, I'm, I'm still trying. I still Eight can't do it. years ago. Eight years, two months pregnant. Okay. I got it. I got it. <sighs> Who allowed us to do this? I mean. No one. No one allowed us to do anything. That's a record. And scene.